This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. February 10th, 1978, Wichita Police Chief Richard Lemunyan announced the presence of a serial killer in the community. The purpose of this news conference is to advise the public of extremely serious matter involving a series of murders which occurred in our city. As you know, in January of 1974, four members of the Otero family were murdered. In March of 1977, Shirley Vianne was killed, and in December of 1977, Nancy Fox was also murdered. Earlier today, KAKE-TV immediately brought me a letter where the author took credit for the Otero, the Fox, and the Vianne murders. In addition, whoever wrote this letter has taken credit for a seventh victim. We are in no doubt convinced that the person who killed the Oteros, Miss Fox, and Miss Vianne is the same person. I want to restate There is no question in our minds that the person who wrote the letter killed these people. This person is consistently identifying himself with the initials BTK and wishes to be known as the BTK Strangler. Because we are sure that this man is responsible for seven murders, we wish to enlist the assistance of each citizen of this community. Our police department has already begun special efforts, which is as follows. Number one, additional uniform officers already on the street. Number two, a special detective task force involving the major case squad has been established. Number three, a special phone number for citizens to call has been established. This number will be staffed 24 hours a day. Number four, we solicited the assistance of the district attorney, the sheriff, and professionals in the field of human behavior and would welcome the assistance from any person regardless of their expertise. I know it is difficult to ask people to remain calm, but we are asking exactly this. When a person of this type is at large in our community, it requires special precautions and special awareness by everyone. Welcome to the True Crime Librarian. I'm your librarian and host, Ashley. Tonight, we dive deeper into the mindset of Dennis Rader as life continues on as far as his new job and a new baby All is seemingly normal. What's being led behind the scenes is a secret life of stalking women from the comfort of his ADT company van. As he worked installing new alarm systems to keep the man the community feared out. But little did they know the man from church who was currently installing the system and the one they feared were one in the same. 
Dennis Rader watched his community sphere grow and he enjoyed it. But when he didn't get the media attention he thought he deserved, they took part of that enjoyment away. He was going to make them listen. An infamous killer was going to perfect his trade. Warning, this episode contains graphic detail of sexual fantasies, perversion, torture, murder, and adult language. Listeners' discretion is advised. If you feel any of this may be too much for you, please skip this episode or have someone listen with you or for you. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Good evening, everyone. Let me do a little bit of housekeeping before we get started. You only have a few days left to head over to the merch store and use the code 5KGOAL, all one word, for 15% off your true crime librarian gear. If you are not following me on Facebook or Instagram, what are you waiting for? This is the best way to keep up with the librarian in cases coming your way. If you are listening on YouTube, don't forget to hit that subscribe button and turn on the notifications so you never miss an upload. And finally, last week we launched the official website for the True Crime Librarian. Just head over to thetruecrimelibrarian.com and check out some of the work that has been happening behind scenes. Finally, let me show a little love to the show's top true crime nerds for this week. Charlie. Sheena, Catherine, McSee, Trey Payne, Lori Ford. These true crime nerds have supported the show either through recommendation or reviews. This is the cheapest and easiest way to support the librarian and to help it grow. So share the love and you could make it onto the top true crime nerds list next week. That's enough of that. Let's get down to what you all came here for, the true crime. The first attempt at communication from BTK we discussed last week, it was the, the letter describing exactly how each of the Otero members were left by BTK. It was very descriptive and lewd, to say the least. We learned that he would go home afterwards and he would sit down and each, each of his crimes has a project name. Otero's were Project Little Mex, and Kathy Bright was Project Lights Out. 
He would go home after the murders and he would relive every single detail until he had it perfect. And once he decided that it was perfect, he would sit down and he would write a manuscript. And in the manuscript, Rex was his murderer. Now, when it came time to announce himself through the form of a letter, he tucked it in between mechanical engineering book at the Wichita Public Library. And it was found after he notified the Eagle saying, there's a letter over there and it, it's going to tell you what happened. So at first, detectives were <laughs> baffled. This man is communicating with them. He's telling them exactly what they want to know by the person who committed the crime. The only thing is they have no idea who he is. None. Uh, you know, at first, let's look into the backgrounds of Joe Otero. He, he was just recently retired from the Air Force. He did some covert operations in Panama when he was stationed down there, according to his eldest son, Charlie, who thought maybe something from Panama could be what happened to his parents or why it happened to his parents. But at this point, detectives, they're just grabbing at whatever. And the longer it goes, the colder the case becomes. They have no idea. They're very set on the fact that this wasn't a single person. There's, that's, there's way too many victims for one person to have managed the entire scene. What they don't realize is none of what they thought they knew is correct. And they did not know it until they got communication from BTK. Eventually, a journalist from the Wichita Sun, which is an alternative newspaper that is only um, printed once a week, her name is Kathy Hinkle, she manages to get her hands on a copy of that letter. And through rumor, it is said that the author would kill again if he didn't get his moment in the media spotlight. So his communication with the Eagle and the police. All of this was to get some sort of attention. He was not being feared. And Kathy Bright, her murder was not tied to him yet. Right now, whoever killed Kathy Bright and whoever killed the Oteros, they were two different sets of people, right? Well, that's what Wichita PD thinks right now. Two sets of people. There's no way the same person committed both. The MOs are different. Kathy was stabbed. The others were strangled. Uh, Kevin survived. Nobody survived from the Oteros that was home. They are looking at, if you look at the whole picture, it looks like you have two different stories. So they have nothing to go on. And then they have this letter from a man claiming to be BTK, bind, torture, kill. Kathy Hinkle, she's kind of, she's an alternative news journalist, but when I say that, I mean, you need to think of like um, National Enquirer level kind of thing. They're not typically a verified source. However, Kathy, out of plain manners, goes to Richard Lemunyan and tells him, you know, I've got this letter. He wants his name out there. 
and I'm going to publish it. And this pisses him off. He does not want this published at all because he does not know what the next step is. And if we go out there and we say there's this guy named BTK claiming to have killed a family of four, how does this make us look? You know, what kind of fear, what kind of chaos are you going to spread? So he doesn't want the letter published. And Kathy Hinkle, she's like, hey, this is just common courtesy. I'm telling you, I'm publishing it. Even though the vein in the top of your head is about to explode, I'm still going to do it anyways. So it gets out there. And BTK finally gets his claim to the Otero murders. But what we're not seeing from this, and the police start to pick up from the contents of what is published uh, about the Otero murders. And then this is the first time somebody links Kathy Bright's murder to the Otero murders. Why are they linked? Well, they're linked because Julie Otero worked for the Coleman Company. She was recently fired. She hadn't worked there for long. They'd only been in Wichita for like 10 weeks. Kathy Bright, she worked for the Coleman Company. And then right before the Oteros were, were executed in their home, this, there was a supervisor from the Coleman factory who had been robbed and shot. He survived. However, now, the, now this Kathy Hinkle, she is connecting dots, right? Okay, so BTK and the Oteros, there's, we've got the Coleman Company, and then there was this young girl who was viciously stabbed to death in her home where her brother was shot in the face twice and survived. She also worked at Coleman, and then right before the Otero murders, a supervisor was shot and robbed from the Coleman Company. We're starting to have this connection. And me and my boss at work, where our, our constant motto is two sets of eyes are better than one. And at this point, Richard Lemonian and his, his department, they were getting nowhere. We had this huge task force of detectives. Everybody's working their own angle, trying to figure out what happened and who did the Oteros the way they did. But as far as looking at Kathy Bright and seeing similarities, they're not there. The MO is different. With the Oteros, they're bound, they're tortured, they're killed. With Kathy Bride, it's chaos. There is no control. She was bound. She broke free. Kevin was bound. He broke free. Kevin was shot twice in the head. Kathy was stabbed 13 times in her between her stomach and her back. It was wild. It was crazy. It was not the same MO. Therefore, those ties never came together until Kathy Hinkle ties them together in this tabloid style story, right? So she wasn't completely wrong, but she wasn't completely right either because Kathy Bright and the Oteros, they are linked. There was one person. However, the, the supervisor who had been shot and robbed, that was a completely and totally different scenario. Dennis Rader had nothing to do with that. She was reaching and she had a grip on something. She just didn't realize what she had a grip on. And had she dug a little further, Dennis Rader had also worked for the Coleman Company. 
But as of this moment, he's absolutely nowhere on anybody's target at all. This man just got married. He's ex-military. He had a baby. None of this, he's, you know, he's a member of the church. He's a member of the community. Hell, he installs freaking security systems for a living. He is in no way the person who did this. So he's not on police radar at all. He thinks, with every time he screws up, he thinks he gets on it. But he's really not. They haven't looked in his direction just yet. And at the point that he finally gets the notoriety that he thinks he deserves, they finally publish his letter that came out of the mechanical engineering book at the library. He's a solid month into installing security systems for ADT. Okay. Ironically, he is the person the community is fearing, right? Only he's also the one that's coming in and installing your system to hopefully try and keep him out. The irony is not lost on me. I'm hoping it's not lost on y'all either. Um, he enjoyed knowing how ironic this was. Dennis fed off of things like this. This is what helped him maintain control through the, the long periods between murders. Well, in January of 1974, the Oteros are murdered. In April of 1974, Kathy Bright is murdered. We do not see another murder for nearly three years. At that point, Dennis has been married for almost six years. He now has a one-and-a-half-year-old son, Brian. Brian Rader, he venomously maintains his silence in regards to his father and the infamy that follows. And kudos to you, Brian, if for some reason you are out there listening, keep doing what you're doing. Now, in March of 1977, Dennis has decided, I need to kill again. I can't take this. It's driving me crazy. And I've got a couple people on my list, right? So, March 17th, 1977, Dennis, he dresses up. He puts on some dress shoes and some slacks and his favorite tweed sports coat. He looks in the mirror and he's like, I'm a convincing detective. Here's my briefcase. And inside of his briefcase is the infamous hit kit. He figured out after Kathy Bright's murder that he needs to bring with him his own stuff. It did not help to go break into the home and try and find something that would allow him to get the satisfaction out of the binding and the torture and all that. So he's like, mm, bring my own stuff this time. So what does he do? Well, we'll put it in a briefcase and I'm going to tell everybody I'm a detective and I need to ask you a few questions. You'll invite me in. I'll strangle you. It'll be great. It'll be a fun time, right? So he gets all dressed up. <clears throat> he has this ruse. He's, you know, he's got a picture of his wife and his son in his pocket. And he's going to ask people, do you, do you know who these people are? And they're going to be like, no. And he, but, I, you know, ironically, that's his wife and son. So he heads out. And he decides 
he is going to go to 1207 South Greenwood. Now, this was Dennis's primary target for the day. However, knowing what happened with Kathy Bright, he's, he's decided he needs to have backups. So, he goes over to 1207 South Greenwood. He knocks on the door. He's prepared to word vomit his ruse about, you know, I'm a detective and looking for these people. Let me in your home. Trust me. Only to be let down when no one answers the door. So the, the occupants of that home, they're spared. He's decided he's going to go over to South Hydraulic. He's got a house over there he's looking at too. So he crosses over on his way to 1243 South Hydraulic. This next home has a woman named Cheryl. She's a single mother of a six-year-old son. But Cheryl is also a woman who hangs out at the local college hangout tavern called Blackout Tavern. Hence, he ends up giving her the project name, Project Blackout. Now, and in Dennis's eyes, she's loose. She's partying with friends. She has roommates. She has a son. She's just everything he despises. So he's decided, I'm going to kill her. Nobody answered at the other address. Let's go to this one. So as he's making his way over to Cheryl's home, he sees a little boy walking back from Dylan's. It's the grocery store that he had parked his car at when he had murdered the Otero family. And he sees this little boy walking back and this boy has a bag and it's got something in it. And it piques his curiosity just a little bit because why? It's the middle of the morning. Why is he home? Why isn't he in school? Why isn't he in daycare? What is this child doing home? And why is he walking? He has to have a parent waiting for him at home. So he walks up to the little boy and he tells the boy, you know, I'm a detective. And then he pulls this photo out from the inside breast pocket and asks him, do you know this lady and this boy? And the little boy, he looks at the picture and he says, no, I don't know them. I haven't seen them before. And Dennis asks him, are you sure? And he says, yes, I'm sure. And then off on his merry little way he goes. And Dennis watches him. And as he climbs his stairs to his porch and enters his home, he makes note, there has to be someone at home at that address. And there's a little boy. Well, two birds, one stone, double the satisfaction, right? But don't give up yet because we do have some kind of order. He's not chaos. He doesn't work that way. He, uh, if the situation gets too chaotic for him, he loses control and he cannot allow things to happen like they did at Kathy Bright's house. He just can't take that chance again. So he walks up to the stairs of 1243 South Hydraulic and he knocks on the door. And nobody answers. House number two and second time his plan has fallen through. So he's decided I'm going to go a couple houses down to where this little boy went home at 1311 South Hydraulic. Inside is Shirley Vianne and she's home with her three children, eight-year-old Bud, 
six-year-old Steve, who Dennis had met on the street, and four-year-old Stephanie. They were all just getting over the flu, only Shirley was taking a little bit longer than the children. This is why she had sent Steve down to Dylan's. She had called down to the grocery store, said, I'm going to send my son. He needs soup, and we're going to cash a money order. So Steve did what he was told to, went back, came home, got the wrong soup. Mom sending back to the store. And on his way home the second time is when he ran into Dennis Raider. So Dennis walks up the steps to the house the little boy had just gone into just moments before, and he knocks on the door. And he knows someone's going to answer because someone has to be home. He's too young to be home by himself. Sure enough, as he knocked on the door, Bud and Steve, they take off running. They love to race one another. And they want to see who can get to the front door first. Shirley's, you know, back in her bedroom in her pajamas. She's trying to get them to stop. Steve swings open the door. And there's the man he had just saw on the street. He's standing on his porch carrying the briefcase, dressed in the slacks and the tweed coat. When his mother walks up behind him in her blue house coat with her pink nightgown hanging out from below, when Dennis looks down at Steve and then up to Shirley, he immediately speaks to her. Pulls out a fake business card and shoves it at her, saying, "His name. he is a detective and he has a few questions. And when Shirley tries to say that she does not feel good and did not feel like talking right now, Dennis pushed his way into the home and shut the door and locked it. At that point, Shirley knew something was not right. Dennis looks down at Shirley in her house coat and pink nightgown, and he is almost disgusted with her and her appearance and the way the home is chaotic because of the three young children. None of this is what Dennis has ever considered as the perfect hit. It's chaotic. He's got kids he's got to deal with. He hasn't planned for this. He wasn't prepared to take out a, a mom and three children. But hey, each children offers more and more of a satisfaction. So he pushes into the home showing Shirley his fake little business card saying he's a detective. And Shirley tells him, you know, she's not feeling well and that he needs to leave. But Dennis, he wasn't listening. He closed the door and this is when he lets Shirley know that he's not a detective. He's a bad man. He's a wanted man. And he has a sexual fantasy problem. And he's not going to hurt them. But it's not also, it's not going to be pleasant for her. He says this as almost as truthful as he could, could put it. And, and that's the thing with Dennis. Once he gets through the ruse and he gets them either, he either gets inside their home or he push whatever. Once he gets there, he drops it almost immediately and lets them know that he has sexual fantasies and they're going to be part of it this time. The, he's very forthcoming with that. And that's the thing with him that's almost eerie 
is he doesn't rely on any ruse for more than getting his foot in the door. But he also tells each victim he's not going to hurt them. And this is not because he's not. He is. He's going to kill them. He's going to bind them. He's going to torture them. And then he's going to kill them. That's his M.O. However, he also has to remain in control of the situation. That is something that plays a big part in his desire and in his road to release. So if he tells them he's not going to hurt them, maybe they won't get as screamy or won't defy him or whatever. It allows him to maintain control. In the end, point blank, that's what it does. So he tells them, you know, it's not going to be pleasant, but you, I'm not going to hurt you. Dennis does tell the mother, I'm going to have to tie your kids up. And Shirley begs him not to. And Dennis says, there's no way around this. I'm tying them up. Because in his mind, once he gets done with Shirley, then he can strangle Bud and Steve. And then he can hang little four-year-old Stephanie. This is going to give him the same sexual gratification that he got at the Otero murders. And that was a rush for him. So why not, right? Well, as soon as he goes at Bud to try and tie Bud up, Bud starts screaming and crying and Shirley's not having it. It's, he's, it's going to very quickly unravel his control. So he decides, okay, we're not going to tie him up. Okay, so how about you go get a blanket and some pillows and some toys and we're going to put them in the bathroom. So Shirley lays down a blanket, puts a couple pillows in there, throws in a couple toys, and makes the kids get in the bathroom. Now, once they're in the bathroom, there are two doors. There's a west door and an east door. On the west door, Dennis ties a cord from the doorknob to the pipe that's underneath the sink in the bathroom. And this allow this this effectively locks the door from within so the kids cannot get out because he's got to keep things contained while he takes his time with Shirley. In order for him to get what he needs to have that release, he's got to do it a certain way. So once Dennis gets the kids in there, at this point, the phone has rang once and when nobody picked up, it stopped ringing. Shirley said she would answer the phone and Dennis said no. Now, going back to the Otero murders, if you notice, he cut the phone line at the Otero home. Well, Shirley Vianne and her kids, they were not option one. They were not option two. They were a split second decision when both option one and option two fell through for that day. Dennis needed another killing. He could not live off of the Otero details anymore. He could not live off of the Kathy Bright details anymore. That was chaotic. He barely even had a rise from that one. He needed something to give him another release like he got when he hung Josephine Otero. So, He's in the home. Nobody's answered the phone. It's already rang once. 
The children did not take to him tying them up. So what are we doing? We're going to lock them in the bathroom and we've closed all the shades. Once the kids are in the bathroom, the east door is shut. And then Shirley Vianne's bed is pushed against the door so they can't get out. Now, Bud and Steve are your typical boys. Don't touch my mom. I'm going to protect my mom. I may be small, but, you know, I'm going to protect her. And they're hollering from inside the bathroom. And Steve tells Dennis, I'm going to get out of here and then I'm going to hurt you for hurting my mom. And Dennis tells Steve, that wouldn't be a good idea. Because I'm going to blow your head off if you get out of there. Dennis has a gun. He brought a gun in his hit kit. His hit kit had cords pre-cut, pre-tied. It had a gun. It had his plastic bags. It had tape. He had all of his gear with him. The thing that he lacked with Kathy Bright. He learned his lesson. Bring your own crap. Right? So, he tells Steve... Now, I would stay where you're at right now, little bud, because, um, you know, I'll blow your head off. Stephanie's crying. Bud and Steve are trying to get out of this bathroom. They can't. And their mother does not feel good. And now she's got this sex pervert in her house. And he says, I've got sexual fantasies and you're going to be a part of them. It's not going to be pleasant for you. But let's get this done and over with. So he ties Shirley's. He tapes her calves together, then he tapes her forearms together, and he makes her lay down on the bed. Then he ties her feet to the metal pole on the headboard, and he has effectively put it to where if Shirley struggles in any way, the, the binding will get tighter and it would make it harder on her. Now, she no longer has her nightgown or her house coat on. Um, this is all for Dennis's sexual gratification. He doesn't climb on the bed and get on top of her or penetrate her with his body in any way. That's not who he is and that's not what gets him off. So, once he has her where he wants her, Shirley ends up throwing up onto the floor and Dennis is not he's not a complete and total monster he goes to the kitchen he gets a glass of water he brings it to her she's been sick she told him he's she's been sick and you know he had you know loosened the straps on Julie Otero's wrists when she complained that they were too tight when Joe Otero was saying that his ribs hurt, he folded up a jacket to try and create some padding while he laid on his stomach on the floor. He wasn't a complete and total monster. So he gives Shirley a sip of water and then he slides a plastic bag on over her head, then ties her pink nightgown around her head after learning with Joe Otero that he could chew through the bag and he didn't want to have another situation like that. So he put the plastic bag and then put a piece of clothing over Shirley Vianne's head. At this point, Shirley Vianne struggles, but like I said, the more she struggled, the tighter the cords became, and eventually Shirley passed. Standing next to her was Dennis with his pants down. He had a pair of blue panties,
that she had been stripped of when he before he tied her up and he was masturbating into the panties. Once he was done, he left the panties laying right there next to Shirley's head on the bed and cleaned himself up. He grabbed two pairs of her underwear and he left because in the back of Dennis's mind was the phone. It had now rang twice since he had been in the home and he could not take the chances of having to tie Bud and Steve up and then string poor little Stephanie up and hang her. He just wasn't going to get all three and he needed to get out of there because the longer he's there, the bigger the chance of getting caught was. So he just, he was not going to, he couldn't kill the kids, not this time. Well, Bud and Steve, they were very determined to go and help their mother. And eventually Bud broke through a piece of glass in the bathroom. He ended up cutting his hand pretty badly, but it didn't stop him. Him and Steve climbed out of the bathroom window, ran around to the front of the home, went in through the front door to their mother's bedroom where she was laying naked on her stomach on the bed and she was tied to the headboard with a plastic bag and her nightgown over her face. So the boys, they ran out, they found a neighbor, they told them that, you know, this man had come into their house, their mother wasn't moving, they needed help. Dispatch radioed Officer Raymond Fletcher, and over the radio, they simply said, call in on a phone. And dispatch was known to do this during this time when they had to talk about something they didn't want broadcasted over the ham radio. Fletcher calls in and they tell him, go to 1311 South Hydraulic for a possible homicide. When Fletcher gets to the home of Shirley Vianne, he finds Shirley's body on the bed. He feels four pulse and what he felt was a slight twitch below his fingertips. He decided that he could possibly still save her. So he removes the nightgown and the plastic bag without destroying the knots or anything that could be claimed as evidence. And he begins to perform CPR on Shirley. He did have to cut away the ties on her arms and wrists so he could flip her over. And he was careful to leave intact the cord as much as possible, the tape as much as possible, and definitively did not cut away at the knot itself. He pumped on Shirley for a few moments before he realized his efforts were futile. She wasn't, she didn't make it. Shirley Vianne had, had died at the hands of BTK. He calls back in to dispatch over the radio and he says, send detectives, it's a homicide. Now, Officer Fletcher, he stands back and he starts to evaluate the entire scene. Okay, so let's go over this. We have Shirley Vianne naked. She has a bag over her face. She has her nightgown over her face. Her arms are taped at the forearms and then tied with cord and bound at the wrist. Her legs are taped together at the calves. Her, her ankles are bound with a cord and tied to the headboard of the bed. Looking at the entire scene, you have the binding, you have the torture, and you have a kill. Had Fletcher noticed the blue underwear laying next to her head had a stain in it, 
he would have had the semen and all the dots would have been connected for this, right? So as detectives arrive on scene, Officer Fletcher makes the comment that this looks very similar to the Otero murders and it could possibly be this BTK. Immediately, his supervisors are like, stop this shit. This isn't BTK. The Otero murders, the kids died. The kids are alive here. You're trying to make something out of nothing. Stop it. This isn't, this isn't BTK. And that's it. Fletcher, he's young. He's an officer. He has no supervisory skills. He's got no supervisory title. They say it's not BTK. It's not BTK. Now, going back and talking to Sergeant Bob Cocking after capturing Dennis Rader, the markings are, are there for the Shirley Vianne case. He will admit to that, but at the time that he could not see, he, he didn't want to see this as being BTK because that meant there was a serial killer on the loose in Wichita, Kansas in 1977. How do you tell your community you don't know who this is and you cannot stop them? So why are we looking at this like the Otero murders when there's obvious differences, right? Because Bud, Steve, and Stephanie, they, they weren't killed. But Josephine and Joey were. How do you see a similarity there when one, one family's children were brutally murdered and another family's children were just locked away in the bathroom? So the evidence is there. It, if you look at the picture as a whole, the way Shirley Vianne died, if you walked in and you had seen what had happened in the Ontario family home and then walked into Shirley Vianne's house and saw what you were looking at there, you had a clear connection in the MO. It was there. It was right there. The only difference is they didn't want to claim a serial killer. Not yet. This was That would cause a panic in Wichita. And they would completely lose the grip they had on either cases. They couldn't. They couldn't. The, the other thing with this case is... He didn't cut Shirley Vianne's phone cord. Why? Well, that's easy. We can answer that now. Now we know that Dennis struck out at house one and he struck out at house two and he was not about to go down for a number three strike. He wanted a body and he wanted it that day. He didn't have time to go around the back of the home and cut the phone lines and then come back and try and sell this ruse. The kids saw him. He had an easy in. He told the kid he was a detective. The kid would vouch for him. And with any luck, they'd open the door and not the parent. And he got exactly what he wanted. Just not every single item on the checklist was checked off. We were missing just a couple for them to definitively say this was BTK. Until BTK takes claim. Now, the Vian children, they broke down and they told the officers everything, especially Steve, because Steve had, had spent just a little bit more time with Dennis than the other children because he had seen him in the street when he was coming home from the grocery store. So they asked Steve, you know, what he looked like. 
And Steve tells him he was a man and he was dressed nice. He had a briefcase and he showed me this picture of a lady and a son and a boy and asked me if I knew them and I don't know who they were. And then, you know, he seemed like he was maybe 30 or 40. He had a belly. Um, and then an officer walks by and Steve points to me and goes, he kind of looked like that guy. Well, detectives turn around and look. They've got this young officer in his 20s. He's very fit. There's no paunch belly on him. Immediately, the kid's description of Dennis Rader goes out the window and credibility is lost because he's a six-year-old boy. I don't have no idea what this officer looked like. I have no idea who he pointed out. I have no idea at all. However, when I, when I go over this part of Steve's interview or in, you know, questioning, I can't help but think if maybe the guy had similar hair or similar haircut, or did he have the same facial structures? What, what on that younger officer was there that they could have been like, okay, if he was 30 or 40, yeah, that would make a little bit of sense, right? But back then, they didn't, you have to have some weight that goes with testimony because there's not a lot there to use in in way of finding physical evidence, right? I mean, there's DNA left behind at each crime scene. However, 1977, there is no testing DNA. There's barely a blood matching system. So the semen is useless right now. You know, give it 25 years. They're going to have a little bit better luck with DNA, but... 25 years is a hell of a long time to wait to try and match somebody up on a DNA level, right? Okay, so what's next? Evidence found at the crime scene. There's no fingerprints, even if there had been. It's just a few years prior that they started to fingerprint every criminal who was arrested in Wichita, Kansas. Prior to that, I don't know. You, you know, I don't know if that fingerprints, dicks, or Larry's or Harry's or Sally's or Joe's. Who I don't know who it is. There isn't a system there. And the only way they learn, the only way that investigations get better is through trial and error. So right now, we're grasping at straws. And little Steve here, he doesn't hold any weight. He's six. He says this man looks like a 40-year-old with a punch belly and he's 20 with abs but you can't help but wonder if there was something in the way he walked something in his structure of his face something with the color of his eyes his hair facial hair whatever that that steve identified as being part of dennis raider in the way he looked he shouldn't have been dismissed so readily but at the same time you could show this poor child a lineup and he could say three guys look exactly the same as what he thought the detective that broke into his home and hurt his mom looked like. You have to have credibility. You have to have something because it's got to be no doubt whatsoever. Project Waterfall. That's what Dennis Rader called the death of Shirley Vian because of the name of the street, Hydraulic. 
Project Waterfall was a success in Dennis's eyes. However, the monster was only slightly sated for now. He did not have complete control over that whole situation. He had children threatening to break out of the bathroom. He had to deal with, you know, a woman who was ill who vomited on the floor. He had to deal with an environment that wasn't clean. It wasn't, it showed no signs of complete calm in the situation. He had not controlled it entirely. However, he did get released. Therefore, at this moment, the monster was sated. In autumn of 1977, it left people of Wichita, Kansas, scared of what's going on in their community. The police were no closer to solving the Otero murders than they were on the day it happened. They were no closer into solving the death of the young mother, Shirley Vianne, that happened March 17, 1977. They had two cold cases, three if they had connected Kathy Bright's at the time. But at this point, there was nothing but chaos going on in the community. And everybody had an opinion of what and why this was happening. The older members of the community were blaming sex, drugs, rock and roll, then basically the entire 1960s on the fact that there's this deranged man running around, tying people up, masturbating, killing kids. It's just chaos. The older generation was blaming the decade where the younger generation were blaming the older community saying they were so resistant to change and to opening their minds that it had forced someone in the community to just go off the rails. So you've got one side saying it's the other side's fault. You got the other side saying it's the other side's fault. Everybody's pointing a finger, although nobody is blaming anyone. Does that does that make sense? They are just pointing the finger at random. There's no genuine he did it, she did it. Nothing. Like I said, police, they're no closer. They're just as in the dark as their community members are. They have no idea. They have none. And now they have this guy who's laid claim to the Otero murders when they thought, surely it took more than one. And now they have this young mother who was kind of killed in a similar manner, but her children weren't killed. So could it really even be the same guy? There's nothing. They, they are trying to scoop water with a hole in their bucket. Nothing. Now, Dennis, he, his monster didn't stay sated for long. On December 8th of 1977, his new project called Project Foxy was well underway. Now, Dennis had been following Nancy Jo Fox. She was very young, 25 years old, and she, she lived in this duplex at 843 South Pershing, and she was the only person who lived in the home. She didn't have a roommate. She was a very confident, young, 25-year-old woman who didn't need roommates to stay or feel safe. However, her mother would nag at her and be like, you know, 
terrible things happen to young women who live alone. And Nancy was very matter of the fact, I'm fine. Nothing's going to happen to me. However, she failed to see this man with dark hair and, and a pudging belly following her. He'd even been inside one of her jobs and interacted with her and she didn't even notice him. Now, Nancy, she had two jobs. During the day, she worked for an architectural firm. And at night, she worked for a jewelry company called Hellsberg's Jewelry. Now, she would leave her, her job at the architectural firm, go into Hellsberg's Jewelry, and work till about 9 o'clock at night. Dennis had her schedule down. So the night of December 8th of 1977, Dennis still was juggling his job, his new, his new baby, and his wife, and school. And at this point, he had some research that needed to be done. He had a paper coming up. So he told his wife, you know, I'm going to go down to Wichita State University's library, do some research, work on my paper. Wife was like, okay, see you later. Bye. You know. Dennis didn't realize how attracted he was to young women who lived alone until he found Nancy. And that's the first time he really noticed how easy it could be to remain in control with a situation when it was just one person. No husband, no boyfriend, no children, no animals. He could completely control it one-on-one. Now, the first time that Dennis entered her duplex, he noticed that she was very neat. Her home was kept immaculate. She herself took time in her appearance and the way people saw her. And Dennis liked that about her. He liked that he didn't have to worry about tripping over toys or some disgusting dishes left in the sink or whatever. He had this inner OCD person. And this isn't, I'm not saying OCD and I don't mean to imply that OCD is not a, an actual issue with people because it is. And I probably could have worded that a little bit better. However, she was very meticulous and he liked that because he himself was meticulous in the way his appearance was and the way they lived. He didn't just live like a grungy person. So he's, he's Nancy Fox, perfect subject for him. So as he's going to the library that night to study, and then we'll use some air quotes there because I don't know what he did. I mean, I'm sure maybe he probably worked on something knowing that she didn't get off from the jewelry store till about nine o'clock. And so he had plenty of time to get over there, get situated before she came home. So just before nine, Dennis leaves the library and he heads over to 843 South Pershing and he blocks, he parks a couple of blocks away from her home and he walks over to Nancy's where he knocks on the door and he knocks just so he can see if she's, if maybe she beat him home for whatever reason, the routine changed that night. And had she had answered the door, he had his lie ready to go going, oops, wrong apartment. That was it. 
That, that that was his whole like, oh, she answered the door. Holy crap. Sorry. Wrong, wrong person. And move on. But guess what? Nancy wasn't home. So Dennis walked around to the back of the duplex where he cut the phone line. Now for Dennis, this turned out to be really good because the duplex next door to Nancy was currently vacant, which means if she screamed, nobody would hear her. So after he cuts the phone line, he breaks, he takes the storm window out and he breaks in through the inner pane of the glass and he crawls into the home and he kind of lies in wait for Nancy. Her Christmas tree lights are on and he can have a little bit more of a look around versus the very first time he was in the home. So he kind of is getting a feel and he, he has his gun and that's got some tape, some, some stuff like that, but he's got a pair of handcuffs, but his hit cut is very lacking in this one, and it's weird to see because as we go through this crime, you're going to see that where Dennis learned to bring his own things from the Kathy Bright murder, he enters the Nancy Fox murder, which he proudly proclaims as his best, most perfect hit, and he's very lacking in materials. So once he gets into Nancy's home and he's kind of waited around, he's worried about the lights that are coming around the corner, um, lighting him up inside the home. So he kind of stays crouched down as he moves through the duplex and he goes into the kitchen and he gets himself a glass of water, takes a few sips, cleans the glass out, puts it back, and he picks up the receiver to to make sure that the phone line is down when the front door opens and there's Nancy Fox. And she's, she's no qualms. Get out of my house is what she tells Dennis. And she steps closer and she reaches for the phone that he's currently holding in his hand. And she says, I'm going to call the police. And Dennis just smiles back at her and says, that won't do you any good. I cut the line. And he showed her his gun and Nancy doesn't flinch one centimeter. She just simply asked him, what are you, what are you in my house for? She was not going to go down as a coward. The gun that Dennis is pointing in her face is not going to make her nervous. Nothing. And so when she doesn't get an answer, she asked him, what are you going to do? She has no fear at this moment. She just is, you know, I'm going to kick your ass. Get the hell out of my apartment. That's her mood. And Dennis tells her, he says, I'm a bad guy. I want sex and I have to tie you up to take some pictures. And Nancy's got no time for Dennis and his sexual perversion. She's like, get out. Dennis says, no. And at this point, Nancy's just taking off her coat. She's folding it over nice and laying it over the back of the couch. Like she had just got home to... This guy in her home that they shared an apartment or something. They're having this weird conversation. And at no point does Nancy think to turn around and run. She doesn't think to scream. Nothing. She's just like, get the hell out of my apartment. And Dennis is like, no. So she's standing there and she has her pants on and a, this real pretty pink sweater. And she finally says, hey, cigarette. So she pulls one out and she lights it. And Dennis watches her in as 
almost amazed with the guts that she has because he cannot but most people who have seen him walk into their house they become very frightful very quickly nancy's just like get the hell out of my house go and so dennis is he's mesmerized by nancy and there is a reason why he labels her his his most perfect hit his favorite hit and that's because nancy she didn't feed into the fear now she's sitting down and she's smoking a cigarette and dennis grabs her purse and he goes over to the kitchen table and he dumps it out and he takes her driver's license as a trophy and he basically tells her the same story that he's told the oteros he told kathy or he told shirley vianne He's some wanted man. He's sex, he's sex crazy. He has these fantasies and she has to be tied up. Same freaking story over and over and over. And so Nancy, she puts her cigarette out. She's about halfway through with it. She puts it out and she says, let's get this over with so I can call the police. And Dennis is just looking at her kind of like, what in the hell? So she, she tells him, you know, I need to go to the bathroom. Dennis goes into the bathroom. He makes sure there's like nothing sharp or nothing that can be used as a weapon. And he lets her go in. However, she's not allowed to shut the door. He does hang up a piece of fabric while she goes to the restroom. And Dennis tells her, when you come back, come back with less clothing on. Well, Nancy comes out of the bathroom. She has her pink sweater, her bra, and her purple underwear. That's it. That's all she has on when she comes back into the bedroom. Now, she sees that Dennis is holding a pair of handcuffs and she says, you know, what's that about? And Dennis tells her, this is part of my deal. It makes it, makes it happen for me. And she also notices that he has gloves on and Nancy, she's questioning everything. And eventually she's like, this is ridiculous. This is bullshit. And at this point, Dennis has grabbed her arms, pulled them behind her back and is cuffing her. Now, he lays Nancy down on the bed, face first, and Dennis is halfway undressed himself to kind of give the illusion that he is going to rape her, and Dennis climbs on top of her, and all of this is just to sell the fact that he's some deranged criminal who needs sexual perversions and rape to get laid, and Right before anything happens, he leans down into Nancy's ear and he says, has your boyfriend ever had sex with you in the butt? As the words are coming out of his mouth, he knows he's never going to rape her vaginally or anally. And she has basically given him what he wants with no fight some lip but no fight it didn't matter what the answer to the question was from nancy Vi or nancy fox he knew what he was going to do she had a gag in his in her mouth it's not like she could answer it anyways but it was just enough to make her tighten up to flinch and he begins to take his leather belt off and he wraps it around her ankles and at this point, he realizes he already has an erection. He's already turned on by this situation. And so instead of looping the belt around her ankle even more, 
he pulls it off and he wraps it around her neck and he slides the the belt through the buckle and where the buckle is on her neck and tightening down he has one hand there pushing the buckle into the back of her neck while the other hand pulls the the other piece of leather tight and cinching it until Nancy passes out then he lets go and lets her get some air and when she comes back around he says one last thing to her he says I'm wanted I killed four people in that family the Oteros and I killed Shirley Vianne I'm BTK and you are next and then he cinches the belt tight again around her neck until she passes and during the second strangulation she does thrash around trying to get Dennis off of her but at this point she's given him all the power and Dennis has exactly what he wants once Nancy has died Dennis stands up next to her and picks up a nightgown from the floor where he masturbates into it and then leaves it on the floor he gets dressed <clears throat> puts his clothes back on puts his belt back on he takes the handcuffs off of her wrists and he ties her wrist with nylon and then he puts nylon around her neck where the belt marks are this is to give the mo he could leave behind his belt he could leave behind the handcuffs both of those are are considered bindings and both of those would lead them back to btk but that's not who he was and that's not how he's going to leave this situation this is why he goes back to the nylons because nylons have been used to bind somebody in the oteros and in shirley vian on December 9th of 1977, Dennis is still riding the high from the night before. His perfect hit, the best thing he is ever going to experience in his life had just happened. Everything was just how it should have been from the moment she walked in the door. She was calm. This, the, the whole entire event was calm. He had control. There was no chaos and she allowed him to do what he needed in order to have his release. Just didn't realize it was going to cost her her life. So on December 9th of 1977, Dennis gets out of his ADT work van, heads over to the Oregon's market. It's downtown. He walks into the phone booth just out front and he calls the Sedgwick County Emergency Dispatch at 8.18 a.m. And he tells the dispatcher, you will find a homicide at South Pershing, Nancy Fox. The dispatcher says, I'm sorry, sir, I can't understand you. What is the address? Another dispatcher listening in clarifies for the first dispatcher, I believe 843 South Pershing. Dennis says, that is correct, at which point he drops the receiver in the phone booth and walks away. Dispatch is actively trying to ask more questions, but there's nobody there. An off-duty Wichita firefighter, he picks up the phone receiver 47 seconds after the man left. 
And he simply is trying to tell dispatch he needs to make a phone call. He has no idea who the man was that was just in the booth. He didn't get that good of a look at him. Again, Dennis avoids being seen. He avoids being described. The pure enjoyment of what came from the most perfect hit almost cost him his freedom. Had somebody been paying attention, but he blended in seamlessly that nobody thought twice to, to make note of what he looked like. At 8.22 a.m., Officer John D. Patera reached 843 South Parishing. No one answered his knock at the front door. In the back of the duplex, he walked around and he saw that the phone line had been cut and the storm window was removed from the back window and the inside pane was broken. He couldn't see through the drapes, so DiPerita yelled through the broken window, anyone home? And nothing. So when he pulled back the drape, he could see a woman laying motionless face down on the bed. Her ankles were tied with a piece of yellow cloth and she was wearing a pink sweater. Officer de Petira and Detective Lewis Brown broke down the front door and inside they saw her jewelry box had been dumped out on the dresser. There was a half-smoked cigarette in the ashtray next to the chair and her purse was emptied out on the kitchen table. Inside the duplex there was nylons, strangulation, phone line cut, semen on a nightgown, and it wasn't long before investigators knew it was BTK. The question was, do they say that's who it was? Were they really protecting anyone by not saying it was BTK? The chief of police, he had this conundrum. Does he say something? Does he warn his community? They have an active serial killer on their hands. Nothing. Nothing comes from this. Nothing comes from the investigation just yet. For weeks after Dennis made the phone call to the police to tell them something he was so excited for them to find, he just knew they were going to come and arrest him. He waited. He waited for the knock on the door that would reveal the Wichita PD on the other side coming to arrest him for the murder of Nancy Fox. And it never came. He knew his voice would be on tape and it was just a matter of time. They never came. Despite all of this, Dennis still loved Nancy's hit the best because in his eyes, it was perfect. He had no one to control but Nancy. She did not fight back. She did not cause chaos. There was no kids. There was only him and her. That's it. And he could stay in control because she herself was not a person who was out of control. She was meticulous. He was meticulous. The home was clean. He was clean. He compared apples to oranges when it came to Shirley Vianne. He was completely disgusted with how kind of dingy she was. He hated the fact that there was children home. He thought there was just one and it ended up being three. The scene was chaotic. He had no control. The release was not as great as it was with Nancy Fox. 
with her, it was everything he could have ever imagined one of his hits being. It was there. Now, after Nancy had died, I told you, he took the cuffs off. He tied the nylon. He removed his belt. He tied some more nylon. But he didn't just walk away with her driver's license as this trophy. He decided he was going to take a couple of the silkier pieces of her lingerie and he would use those later to put on himself. He would use them as a way to reflect back on the hit and relive those details during moments of masturbation for him after the fact. If Dennis could memorialize this, this more than any he did. He did with, with everything he walked out of that door with. Now, he even took a pearl necklace from Nancy and decided he was going to give it to Paula. His wife wore a pearl necklace that the victim he loved the absolute most had owned. So every time she put that on, he relived what had happened in that duplex that night. When no one showed up to arrest Dennis, he started to get cocky and careless. And he decided he was going to sit down and he was going to write a poem about Shirley Vianne. The police had not linked Shirley Vianne and the Oteros. They had not linked Nancy Fox and Shirley Vianne or the Oteros. It was not being, his pieces weren't being put together enough for him. So he sat down and he decides he's going to write this poem. Quote, Shirley Locks, Shirley Locks, wilt that be mine? Thou shalt not scream, nor yet fee the line, but lay on cushion and think of me and death and how it's going to be. BTK. Now, Dennis is sitting down writing this poem out when his wife comes home from work one day and he shoves it down in between the cushions of his chair and he completely forgets about it until Paula finds it and Paula's like, so what's this about? And Dennis tells her he's, you know, he's taking these criminology courses at Wichita State University and one of the things in class was they were talking about this BTK person and they were to write something from his point of view. And Paula, she takes it hook, line, and sinker. Okay, that that seems legitimate. Okay, well that that you know explains away this really odd poem. And Dennis, he decides he needs to send this to the media. So he sits down with an index card and he stamps it out with this ch this children's stamp kit, and he stamps the poem out. And it's very blocky letters. You can see the stamp markings around each individual character. And he stamps this out and he mails it off to the Eagle on January 31st of 1978. Just a little over a month and a half from Nancy Fox's death and 10 months since Shirley Vian's. Now he mails this off and when it gets to the Eagle, the, the staff, they don't realize 
what it is they're holding because it kind of looks like an ad that needs to go in their classified advertising self you know the the like personal ads that used to be in the paper way back then they think it goes there so it is reclassified and sent over to the classified advertising section however because there was no money with it it got put in the dead letter file which means they couldn't run it because nobody paid for the advertisement and nobody realized that Shirley Locks was really Shirley Vianne. And when they didn't run his poem, Dennis got pissed. This pissed him off royally. And so he sets on it for a little bit and he chews it over and then he decides he's going to write a letter. And he's going to send it over to KAKE TV station. And now we have letter number two from BTK on February 10th of 1978. And it reads, I find the newspaper not writing about the poem on the Vianne unamusing. A little paragraph would have enough. I know it not the media fault. The police chief, he keeps things quiet and doesn't let the public know there are psycho running around loose, strangling mostly women. There are seven in the ground. Who will be next? How many do I have to kill before I get a name in the paper or some national attention? Do the cop think that all those deaths are not related? Golly gee. Yes, the MO is different in each, but look, a pattern is developing. The victims are tied up. Most have been women. Phone cut. Bring some bondage. Matter sadist tendency. No struggle. Outside the death spot. No witness except the Viang's kids. They were very lucky. A phone call saved them. I was going to tape the boys up with plastic over their head. Like I did with Joseph and Shirley. And then hang the girl. God, oh God, what a beautiful sexual relief that would have been. Josephine, when I hung her, really turned me on. Her pleading for mercy, then the rope took hold. She helpless, staring at me with wide terror-filled eyes, the rope getting tighter, tighter. I don't understand these things because you're not underneath the influence of Factor X. The same thing that made Son of Sam, Jack the Ripper, Harvey Glattman, Boston Strangler, Dr. H.H. Holmes, Pantyhose Strangler of Florida, Hillside Strangler, Ted of the West Coast, and many more infamous character kill. Which seems as senseless, but we cannot help it. There is no help, no cure except death or being caught and put away. In a terrible nightmare, but you see... I don't lose any sleep over it. After a thing like Fox, I come home and go about life like anyone else. And I will be like that until the urge hit me again. I'm not continuous and I don't have a lot of time. It takes time to set a kill. One mistake and it's all over. Since I about blew it on the phone, handwriting is out. Letter guide is too long, and typewriter can be traced too. My short poem of death and maybe a drawing. Later on, real picture, and maybe a tape of sound will come your way. How will you know me? 
Before a murderer or murders, you will receive a copy of the initials BTK. You keep that copy, the original will show up someday on Guess Who. May you not be the unluck one. P.S. 2. How about some name for me? It's time. Seven down and many more to go. I like the following. How about you? The BTK Strangler. Wichita Strangler. Poetic Strangler. The Bond Age Strangler or Psycho. The Wichita Hangman. The Wichita Executioner. The Garot Phantom. The Asphyxiator. BTK. Dennis Rader's patience with the media are starting to dwindle. How could they not show him the respect that he deserved? His reign of terror was nowhere close to what he wanted it to be. He started out looking for bondage, torture, and murder to give him the ultimate sexual release. And now he needs the intention in order to fully experience satisfaction. His ability to switch his focus from his personal life to being BTK is one of the most fascinating to see done. For most, the desire to have a better release each and every time takes hold and outshadows anything else. But for Dennis Rader and his self-control, he shows us that the feral can be managed for now. Dennis waited time and time again, thinking with each misstep, the police would be moments from knocking on his door, but it never came. And Dennis started to believe he could get away with murder. He was having his cake and eating it too, all while law enforcement sat around scratching their heads, wondering who all of his victims were. One didn't fit the M.O. I want to thank you all for joining me tonight as we dive even deeper into the mind of an evil, sadistic man. The deeper we go, the darker he seems to get, but his cover life allows him to blend right into the community without anyone suspecting what he is and just what he's capable of. As always, I will leave you with one last line. Behavior is the mirror in which everyone shows their image. Much love, the true crime librarian. <laughs>